0: With me, please, to seven. You'll find this on page sixteen, on to sixteen sixty-two. Revelation chapter seven. I'll be reading it in its entirety. <coughs> Revelation chapter seven, starting in verse one, page. 1,661 on your pew Bible. Hear now the word of God. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12 thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12 thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12 thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12 thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12 thousand Were sealed of the tribe of Manasseh. Twelve thousand were sealed of the tribe of Simeon. Twelve thousand were sealed of the tribe of Levi. Twelve thousand of the tribe of Issachar. Twelve thousand were sealed of the tribe of Zebulun. Twelve thousand were sealed of the tribe of Joseph. Twelve thousand were sealed of the tribe of Benjamin. 12,000 were sealed. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, And crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power, and might, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these, arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, thou knowest. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation." and washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore, nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. My friends, we've been looking For two weeks now, now today the third week, at Revelation 7, the indestructible church. With this theme, the indestructible church worships God for his salvation. The indestructible church worships God for his salvation. Last week we began by asking rhetorically, is there anything that is indestructible? Remember I made reference, for those of us who are old enough to remember such things, to John Cameron Swayze. He used to do Timex, Timex commercials on TV and put the Timex watch through all kinds of, of, of uh, turmoil, all kinds of uh, experiences, uh, whether uh, shaken or put on ice or in terms of like put on the, the, uh, the back of an of a outboard motor, and spun around at high speed, and of course, then he would pick up the the uh, the watch, and he would show that that second hand was still moving because the Timex, you remember, takes a licking but keeps on ticking. And so we looked at that last week. We also talked about the pledge of allegiance to the flag, in which school children. We'll say that uh, the we have one nation under God, indivisible. It's indestructible. Well, we know that Timex watches do wear out and can be destroyed, and we know that empires come and empires go, including the United States of America, the American Empire. None of these things will last forever, but there is something that will last throughout all the ages, and it is the Church. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what chapter 7 of Revelation is telling us. We're in the section then on the seven seals. That sealed scroll. That sealed book. With seals on it which no one can open except for one. It is the Lion of Judah. Who is also the Lamb. That is the one who can open the seal we also mentioned last time that this chapter in Revelation is like an interlude. So you have, let's say you have a concert and you have a lot of, a lot of music and very exciting music and the trumpets are blowing and so forth. And then what, what happens is you have an interlude. You have a, a very quiet piece of music, a more reflective type of music, more meditate, if you will. And that's what you have here. You have all these pictures, these dramatic pictures that have been painted for us in the book of Revelation. And now in chapter 7, we're allowed to catch our breath as it for a moment and to consider the question of whether there is any hope in the midst of a topsy-turvy world boiling with trouble and turmoil, disturbed by cruelty and the slaughter of innocence including young children. In the midst, then, of Christ's divine providences, in the midst of what Christ is doing, what Christ is sovereignly directing in this world, portrayed by those four horsemen of the apocalypse. You remember, children, the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Portrayed also in the, in the horrible cry of the martyrs from the altar, how long, O Lord... Portrayed in the avenging of his saints on all of those of the world, from kings to slaves who are their enemies. In the midst of all of that that is going on in this world over which the sovereign Christ is ruling, John here is telling us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that there is a certainty. There is a certainty. There is a guarantee that the people of God will be preserved. And that's what Revelation 7 is all about. So two weeks ago, we looked at the uh, the sealing of the 144,000. It's in the midst of a vision where the four angels are holding back the four winds. And another angel having the seal of the living God comes. A seal, as we mentioned, protects. It marks it certifies, it protects, puts a hedge about, it marks, it shows ownership, and it certifies, it guarantees in terms of the fact that we are the children of God. And that, that reflects, as we mentioned, the three persons of the Trinity, that God the Father is our protector, Christ is the one who seals us with his own blood, showing that we have been bought with that blood. And the Holy Spirit certifies that we belong to God. 144,000, as we mentioned, was symbolic. It is symbolic. It's 10 times 10 times 10, 10 being a number of perfection, times 12 times 12 times 12 squared. It is symbolic. It's a number of perfection showing God's perfect work with regard to these people that are his elect, not literally 144,000, but a symbol of that, of all the people of God. And last week we considered the worship before the throne, the multitude before the throne, those that are in great number. And of course, there is a, it is a universal crowd, there is, there is a universality here. It's, all, it's people, as we note it, of all nations. Tribes, peoples, and tongues, all groups, all ethnic groups, or we could say all races if we want to use that term. All of them together having white robes pointing to righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, pointing to holiness being worked out in their lives, pointing to the victory that they have in Christ, and the palm fronds like what you remember from Palm Sunday, the palm fronds, showing victory and salvation. And what are they doing? They're engaged in this enthusiastic, exuberant worship, praising God and the Lamb, Jesus Christ, for salvation. The angels are those that are surrounding the throne and the, the 24 elders and the four cherubim, what did they do? They fell on their faces and they worshiped God. What is the content of their, amen, so let it be. And then they give the sevenfold praise, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. I want to pause here, then, just to talk about some lessons on worship that are very important. The first thing we notice in terms of worship is that it is God-centered. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about the preacher. It's not about our emotions. It's not about our feelings. It is God-centered. And being God-centered, it also means that we are to do that which God wants us to do in worship not our own ideas secondly in heaven our worship will be perfect we offer up worship here and we're as it were caught up to heaven we're caught up as it were into the heavenlies with christ as we offer worship in the presence of the angels but we're not perfected yet in heaven our worship will be perfect even though here on earth it is not perfect but in heaven someday it will be perfect thirdly worship is being in god's special presence that is to say it's being before his throne it's being before the very throne of god and you see we take worship so casually especially if i may say so our private worship how many times do we pray before a meal well we try to pray every time right But how many times do we really pray before a meal? See, it it sort of becomes a habit, doesn't it? But we need to realize that when we come, when we offer worship to God, such as in prayer, even before a meal, it means coming into the very presence of God. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we need to pause. We need to think about what we're doing and not just do it. And fourthly, notice something very important, that we are united in our worship no matter what our ethnic background. We are united in our worship no matter what our ethnic background, or we could say our racial background. We are united in our worship. So all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues are together engaged in worship, and it's the same worship. May I be bold here and say that there is no such thing as white worship or black worship or chinese worship. <laughs> There's only biblical worship. That's it. Now we can talk about what exactly that means. I'm I'm well aware that not everyone who's a member of our denomination or this congregation is committed to the principles of Reformed Presbyterian worship I'm aware of that but my friends the what governs how we worship is that it's a sincere desire to worship according to the word of God and if we are if the Reformed Presbyterian church is wrong in that regard then we together need to go to scripture and we need to say okay so what does the word of God say in terms of worship because there is no such thing as white worship, or black worship, or Chinese worship, or Indian worship. It is the worship of God, by, which is offered by people from all nations, tribes, tongues, Amen. peoples. And so we are then to be united. Notice that ethnicity, let us say, our racial backgrounds color of our skin whatever the way you know certain characteristics those things are not done away with by the fact that we're saved some of us are white some of us are black that's the way god made us praise god okay ethnicity is not taken away by the fact that we are all saved but cultural considerations do not determine then the content of worship That's part of the point of the church is that we are all in this together as we are submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ, to his kingship, and as we are offering the worship that he has commanded. Well, we see the sealing of the 144,000 and the worship before the throne, and now we come to the multitude of saints, the multitude of saints, starting in verse 13. Notice this question and answer here. So one of the elders asked, who are these who are clothed in the white robes? And from where have they come? And notice the, the angel um, or the elder didn't ask because he didn't know the answer. That wasn't the point. Rather, he was challenging John and his knowledge. And so John answered, my Lord, thou knowest, you know. And now we come to the identification as, as the elder says to him. The identification in verse 14, who are the multitude here? Well, first of all, they are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They've gone through it, they've gone through the trouble, but now they are out of it. Now they've come through it, they are out of that. They've passed through that difficult period. Not only that, they are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So, notice the actions here. First of all, they've washed their robes, their clothes. They've washed their robes, and they've made them white. Now, notice then that there is an active side to salvation. There's an active side. You must personally embrace Christ and all of his benefits, and you do so by faith. So faith is not a work. Faith means trusting in what God has done, relying upon Christ and his salvation. And there is a sense in which we relax in that, just like you see a chair and you say, well, I know that chair can hold me up and I'm going to place myself in the chair. And that chair holds you up from the ground. Even so, Christ holds us up from our sin, holds us up from hell. But the point is, you still have to do it. You still you still have to place your trust in Christ. Now, again, the Bible is very clear. Even the faith to believe, even our faith is a gift of God. So we don't come to God and say, well, God, I'm so glad that, you know, I have so much faith that I'm able to, to do this. no. Even the faith to believe, according to Ephesians 2, is a gift of God. So it is not of works, but nevertheless, you have to embrace it. It's not that Christ believes for you. Christ gives you the grace so that you can believe. And this is all through Christ's blood. Other blood, st- how many times have we seen a, a white dress or a white shirt or whatever that has stains in it? Whether it be through wine or or ink, like one of the shirts, I I one of my white shirts has uh, some ink stains in it. This is the absent-minded professor putting the pen in without you know with, without uh, uh, retracting it. Okay. How many how many times though, especially with blood, it's hard to get out blood stains, isn't it? But what's amazing is is that the blood of Christ washes all the stains away and makes us whiter than snow as Isaiah says and so they've come out of the great tribulation they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb and that leads us then to the blessedness the happiness of the saints notice verse 15 therefore They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. So, first thing we see in terms of the blessedness, the happiness of the saints of God is their place. Their place, they are before God's throne. As a matter of fact, he is the one who dwells among them. You know what he, in the Old Testament, how did he do this? He spread a tabernacle for them. He spread a tent for them. God tabernacles with his people. God meets with his people. He spreads a tent. You see this in Leviticus chapter 26 in terms of one of the feasts. We we read this in other places such as uh, Ezekiel. The prophecy of Ezekiel, uh, chapter 37, verses 26 and following. God says, moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. It's eternal. The church is indestructible. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary, my dwelling place, in their midst forevermore, my tabernacle, also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So we have the tabernacle, the temple of God. But here, notice that they are before the throne of God That is where their place is. They are before God's throne. They indeed are in his temple. But not only are they happy in their place, they are happy in their employment. They are the ones who are serving in his temple. Just like the Levites in the Old Testament, that priestly tribe, the tribe of Levi, the ones who who would sacrifice the animals, the ones who would... Um, do all of that ceremonial worship in the Old Testament, They they were in the tabernacle or then in the temple of God, the place where God showed himself to be, the place of God's holiness. And the saints are doing this. They are serving him, notice, day and night, day and night. That is to say, without weakness, without drowsiness, without weariness. They have the strength, as Isaiah 40 says, to mount up like uh, 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 on wings like eagles. They're given renewed strength. They're able to do it day and night, and indeed continually. We'll sing at the end of the service today one of our favorites, Psalm 134, uh, which talks about those who are serving In the temple of God. And in Psalm 134, we read, Bless the Lord, Bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who by night stand in the house of the Lord, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. And so they are happy in their employment as well as in their place. But they are also happy. God's people are also happy in freedom from all of life's inconveniences or all of the the troubles of life, we might say. Notice what it says here. They, verse 16, they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. So, God's people, you see, are going to be free from want, and from sense of want. That is to say, hunger and thirst. How many times do we get hungry? You know, if we miss a meal, our stomachs start growling, don't they? If we miss a meal, maybe it's a really hot and thirsty day, and we get thirsty, if you will. And... You know what's interesting is that it's not that we won't have any more desires in heaven but they will be satisfied immediately they shall neither they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore and even from sickness and pain we will be free the sun won't fall on them uh, nor any heat. The sun will not fall on them, nor any, it shall not strike them, nor any heat. Now today we read from Isaiah chapter 49. And it was a long passage, I realize that, but let's go back there just, just for a moment and look at Isaiah 49. Very interesting passage, because among other things, it's telling us, I mean, it has very similar themes to what we find in Revelation. For example, it's saying that Christ, you notice in verse 6, Christ will be given as a light to the Gentiles. At verse 6, it's too small that you should raise up my servant to raise up, or it, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to preserve the, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. See, there this universal theme, isn't there, in terms of this. And then notice also, as you come to verse 10, they shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them, For he who has mercy on them, even by the springs of water, he will guide them. Isn't that interesting? It's a quote from Isaiah 49, verse 10, what we have here in Revelation 7. And of course, this shows God's grace by means of the Redeemer, his servant, his servant, Jesus, and that Jew and Gentile alike are included in that blessing. And so all of the saints of God then are not only happy in their place before the throne of God, not only happy in their employment, serving in his temple, not only happy in freedom from all of life's inconveniences, all the kinds of things that can happen to us, but also, my friends, they are happy in the love and guidance of Jesus Christ. Because notice what it says here in verse 17. For the Lamb who is in the middle of the throne will shepherd them. The Lamb who is in the middle of the throne will shepherd them. The Sovereign Lord of Glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one who, who is on the throne. He is the one who is ruling. He is the one to whom all authority has been given in heaven and on earth. In Ezekiel 34, verse 23, we read, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them my servant David, that is to say, the Lord Christ Christ, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. But did you notice what it says here? It doesn't say the Lord is who in the midst of the throne will shepherd them. It doesn't say the Lion of Judah. It doesn't say the Son of God. Those are all true. What does it say? For the Lamb who's in the midst of the throne will shepherd them. See, it's on the basis of what he has done in sacrificing himself at the cross. It's on that basis that the lamb is also the shepherd and is able to be the shepherd, is able to exercise that power and authority, able to display that love and that guidance. The lamb in the middle of the throne shall shepherd them, shall guide them. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want And again, with reference to the 23rd Psalm and Isaiah 49, what shall he do in shepherding them? He will lead them to living fountains of waters, living springs of waters. You're probably aware there is much desert there. You know, it's a great relief if you're out in the desert to be able to find an oasis which is not a mirage, which is not, you know, the figment of your imagination. Near Bethlehem, Israel, there's an oasis called Nahal David, which features a waterfall, or we would say flowing or living water, not a stagnant pond, and that all year round. That's unusual. That's unusual in the Middle East. But here, that's the picture that you have here. Living (coughs) fountains of waters. So what does this tell us? My friends, that Christ supplies never-ending refreshment. Christ supplies never-ending refreshment. Oases in the desert can dry up. But we are here promised that we will never be disappointed because the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will lead us to living fountains of water. What does that mean? Is it simply a physical? No, it's not simply physical. It's deeper than that, is it not? It means that all of our deepest longings and desires will be satisfied. You see, all of us, this is the temptation, all of us want to find or try to find satisfaction in this life. You know, the old song, I can't get no satisfaction. Remember that? But that's, the, that's what the world is. It can't. That's why it goes into alcohol or drugs or sports or sex or power or prestige or education, success, whatever it may be. This is a temptation for every one of us to find or try to find our satisfaction in the things of this world. But the Bible says you're not going to find satisfaction there. But the Bible also tells us there is one who will supply that satisfaction and it is the Lamb who's in the midst of the throne who will lead you to living fountains of waters. Particularly then, this is a reference to our spirits to spiritual refreshment how will this be supplied these this refreshment psalm 36 tells us of the fountain of life which is with the lord the fountain of life which is with the lord you remember what jesus said in john uh, chapter 7 john chapter 7 verses 37 and 38 on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus told the woman at the well, John 4, that whoever drinks of the water which he gives shall never thirst again. But you know, What's interesting about this is we do have this need. But the glory is, is that the need is met. We do have this need. Notice, it is for the thirsty that living waters make sense. It's for those who know what their need is. That's the point, isn't it? You have to know your thirst. You have to understand your need including your spiritual need, particularly your need of Christ. In Revelation 21, verse 6, Jesus said to John, It is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Revelation 22 verse 17 the very end of the book and the spirit and the bride say come and let him who hears say come and let him who thirst let him who thirst come whoever desires let him take the water of life freely so my friends i would just ask you at this point are you thirsty do you have a genuine spiritual thirst, knowing that it is that, that thirst can only be slaked through Christ, indeed provided by Christ's death and resurrection? So not only do we see the blessedness of the saints by being happy in their place, happy in their employment, happy in freedom from all of life's inconveniences, happy in the love and guidance of Jesus Christ, including his providing living water, but happy in deliverance from sorrow. Because we read the very end of this chapter, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God shall wipe away every tear out of our eyes. Of course, there's another side to this too, isn't there? As we saying from Psalm 56 today, God treasures up every tear that we shed because he knows, he knows. He writes every tear in a book. He puts every drop in a bottle and he treasures it up. And he leads us, you see, through the, the, this tribulation. He leads us through these difficult times, out of the great tribulation. And whatever we go through in this life, Not that he doesn't care. But he knows who we are, and he knows what we need, and he knows how to lead us to the living waters. And there are difficulties in that regard, are there not? But God treasures up every tear, and at the same time, as we see here, he shall wipe away every tear out of our eyes. The removal, therefore, not just of the tears, But in heaven, the removal of the causes for tears. The removal of the sorrows themselves. We will not have any more sorrow in heaven. We will have no more sorrow. No more pain. No more regrets. No more hurts. No more aches. Children, old age is coming for you all. You will get to know aches, not just Some of you have aches in the meantime, back and so forth. But if you belong to Christ, someday all those aches and pains will be taken away. Happy in deliverance from sorrow. Now by way of application today, I first of all want to give some lessons on salvation. First of all, notice, so notice with me, notice with me, take notice of the fact that The number of the saved is not a small number. It is a great number. That's what we see here. Myriads, right? We see millions, uncounted, if you will. Verse 9, a great multitude which no one could number. In other words, Christ's death on the cross paid the price for an uncountable, from our perspective, an uncountable number of people. And so that's the first thing. Notice the great number of those who are saved and rejoice in it. But secondly, in terms of salvation, notice the great incentive for making your calling and election sure. Our time of sorrow in this life is relatively brief. 70 years, 80 years, 100 years. And then what? Then you die. And then you face eternity. How long is 80 years, children, in contrast, in comparison to eternity? It's like that. It's like a snap of the fingers, it's like a drop in the bucket of an ocean. And even that doesn't quite tell the story because eternity literally is without end, it literally is infinite. But this, then, is a great incentive for us making our calling and election sure, not only because of the relative brevity of life and the significance of how we live our lives now for what eternity will be like, but the fact that after we die, we will be in glory. We will be in heaven if we are trusted Christ heaven for all eternity so these lessons on salvation secondly lessons on life lessons on life first of all notice that grief is real and that we should not we should not downplay that we should not pretend that it's not there grief is real Sometimes we we sort of, we try to comfort people and we're sort of too fast to do that, aren't we? Grief is real. We've all been through difficult times. Some of y'all have been through very painful times. Remember the Lord remembers those tears. So maybe you've suffered a tremendous and painful loss. And let me also say that there are those who are inconsolable in the face of tragedy. Various atrocities uh, throughout history. Various atrocities throughout history. Um, We think of the Holocaust. Or or we think in the Bible, Matthew 2, with regard to the birth of Jesus, the, the massacre of the innocents. The massacre of the innocents. Jesus escaped. But think of all those babies who were killed. And scripture applies that and says, makes reference to an Old Testament passage and says, they would not be comforted because the children were not. And so, there are many folks who go through these things and are overwhelmed with them. And so, That's another lesson in terms of life. Don't do that. Don't think, don't despair. Don't say, I I refuse to be comforted like the people during the the days, the early days of Jesus' life here on earth. But do, do show hope. Do, do. Embrace the hope that is found. For Christians, you see, are called upon to grieve, but to grieve as those who have hope. Some of y'all may be aware of J.R.R. Tolkien and his book, Lord of the Rings, with regard to the, the hobbits, right? And in that book, in that book, Towards the end, one of the characters says, you know, I, I, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but you're not dead. You're alive. The resurrection, you see. And it is said in that book: everything sad will come untrue. Everything sad will come untrue. Everything all the the sad things, the horrible things, the gut-wrenching things, someday they'll all be put right. They'll all be reversed. Everything sad will come untrue for those who are in Christ. Now, my friends, the world may mock this as just so much talk, But Peter, the Apostle Peter, proclaims, we did not follow cleverly devised fables, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him. We saw him. We put our our fingers on him. We felt him. We held him. We heard him after the resurrection. And we know that because he rose, we will rise too. There is a certainty, therefore, the blessedness, the happiness of the saints in their place, their employment, their freedom from want, the love and guidance of Jesus, and deliverance from sorrow. It is found in the resurrection of the Lamb who was slain but is now standing. It is sealed by the promises of the triune God. It is confirmed by faith, which is the victory. And it is rooted in the eternal election of God, the 144,000, which really is an innumerable company. The eternal election of God, which has ordained an indestructible church, which will forever engage in worship before the throne, Amen. Will you please stand for prayer. And now, our Father, we pray that thy Holy Spirit would take this word and would apply it to each one for the glory and honor of thy Son, the Lamb, the Lamb of God, the Lamb who was slain, the Resurrected One, the One who provides us with living water. May we find our refreshment in him. We pray in Jesus' name.